Let's begin with the latest on the pandemic. Officials acknowledge what was widely feared, that the number of dead is far higher than reported. Dystopian, apocalyptic. I am seeing people die every single day. How do you start the economy back up? How do you start getting back to work as quickly as possible? It's going to come down to testing. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Science, more public health, not politics, uh, must be the guide. Let's not make the mistake of pulling the plug too early as much as we all want to. Medical Stories from the Front Lines, and I'm your host, Sandy DeLonga. On today's episode, we'll hear stories from people facing the coronavirus pandemic head-on. The amazing doctors and nurses working in emergency rooms turned into war zones. You know, so you really start to think about the actual risk of your job exposing you to something that, I mean, quite frankly, could kill you. We'll also talk to the everyday people that are taking on this challenge, each in their own way. An Amazon delivery driver keeping commerce afloat. Grocery workers helping us keep food on the table. I've never had a job where I have to wear a face mask before or constantly wear gloves or sanitize everything. It can be draining. Absolutely, it can be draining. Day after day, despite horrible odds, these people find a way to keep going, to put others' needs before their own personal safety and hope for the best. Also, as this crisis evolves, we're slowly beginning to realize that it may be weeks, months, or longer before life as we know it returns. The threat of an unseen enemy, the uncertainty about the scope of the pandemic, and the complete disruption of our normal routines is taking its toll on our mental well-being. What will it take to get through this pandemic? We'll speak with mental health experts that have tips for coping with the anxiety and depression we're all facing. One of the things that we're trying to to put together is physician networks that are working with a lot of frontliners, healthcare workers, and make sure that we can provide the services uh, for them and make it accessible to them. But first, how did we get here? And why was the U.S. so unprepared to deal with this pandemic? It's been more than three months since COVID-19 gripped the nation. From the first reports of cases in a Seattle-area nursing home to the overwhelming impact of the coronavirus on densely populated New York City and the surprising hotspots that sprung up in more rural areas of the country, often due to prison populations and staff that can't practice social distancing or close working conditions at meat processing plants that help to spread the virus. As of this podcast, the number of confirmed cases in the U.S. has topped 1.3 million, a third of all cases reported worldwide, and over 80,000 citizens have died from the virus. The economy is in freefall, with a record number of people out of work, unable to meet their basic needs of food and housing. Major companies across all sectors have begun filing for bankruptcy protection. Despite some states easing restrictions, millions in the U.S. are still living under stay-at-home orders. Handwashing, social distancing, and wearing masks in public has become the new normal. 
Early reports out of Wuhan, China, say the first case of coronavirus was toward the end of 2019. But some reports suggest there were cases evident in early December. By January 23rd, Wuhan would be in complete lockdown, with Chinese officials admitting they were, quote, likely facing a pandemic, end quote. The first reported case in the U.S. was January 20th in Washington state, where a U.S. traveler returned from Wuhan with symptoms of the disease. The World Health Organization didn't officially name the outbreak a pandemic until March 11th. On March 13th, President Trump issued a national emergency. By this date, the U.S. had nearly 1,300 cases of coronavirus. COVID-19 had begun to spread exponentially. Just two weeks later, on March 27th, the U.S. would have the distinction of surpassing all other countries, with over 100,000 confirmed cases. Three days later, on April 1st, that number would double to 200,000. The question remains, why weren't we better prepared for this? Elected officials usually don't spend money on hypotheticals like a possible pandemic. Effective preparation for a pandemic requires an agreement to tie up resources on something that may or may not happen. That's hard to do when people have more pressing concerns like employment, housing, education, and public safety. All in all, since the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, seven notable epidemics have been recorded, five of them within the last 20 years. The SARS pandemic hit in 2003. Avian or bird flu made headlines in 2006. Swine flu or H1N1 took over half a million lives from 2007 through 2009. MERS, a respiratory epidemic, hit in 2012. And by 2014, Ebola claimed nearly 12,000 lives in West Africa. Each outbreak through the years prompted concern, but after the initial scare, world leaders and the public soon moved on and action faded. In early February, 2020, even after top officials recognized the potential threat of the coronavirus, several weeks were spent downplaying the scope of the pandemic instead of shoring up obvious deficiencies in protective gear, medical equipment, and accurate test kits. On March 12th, Dr. Anthony Fauci acknowledged America's flat-footed response to the pandemic when asked about the lack of testing and supplies for medical workers. The system is not really geared to what we need right now, what you are asking for. That is a failing. And a that, failing, yes. It, it is a failing, I mean, let's admit it. The pandemic turned a spotlight on a glaring problem. Medical supplies and protective gear, like masks and gowns, once produced domestically, were now almost exclusively produced overseas, the majority in China. Two decades ago, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the country formed a new agency to purchase antidotes, bioweapons, and medical supplies to prepare for the next disaster. This accumulation of goods would become known as the Strategic National Stockpile. At that time, 90% of all surgical masks used in the United States were produced here. By 2005, due to industry consolidations and outsourcing, nearly all of the mask production moved overseas. Mike Bowen is a co-owner of Ameritech, one of the remaining U.S. producers of N95 masks. Since 2007, he has lobbied the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations to focus on the mask supply with little to no response. In his words, he said, quote, The world looked at me as a mask salesman who was saying the sky was falling, 
end quote. I've been working on this damn issue for 13 years, trying to save lives. Nobody listened. By 2009, 11 years ago, the nation's supply of N95 masks were seriously depleted in response to the swine flu outbreak, and the stockpile was never fully replenished. That year, CNN interviewed Mike Bowen on the manufacturing floor of his plant about the mask shortage in the U.S. America won't be able to supply its own needs because we're pretty much it. Uh, and all the other manufacturers have left the country. Is there just no stockpile of masks available? What I was told by government representatives in November of 2007 is that for a Category 5 uh, pandemic, they have only about a 1% stockpile of what they need. 1%? 1%. Bowen estimated in the event of a pandemic, the U.S. would need 5.3 billion N95 masks. 50 times more than were in the national stockpile. His prediction would prove to be true. In the weeks after the news from Wuhan, Bowen continued to email the government asking to ramp up domestic production. Frontline medical workers confronted the coronavirus head-on. Without a coordinated federal response for personal protective equipment, ventilators, and a universal plan to handle the epidemic, hospitals and public health officials in each state were forced to provide for themselves. To get a better sense of the scope of the problem nationally, we spoke with an ER doctor in hard-hit New York, an ER doctor in Atlanta, Georgia, and a registered nurse and an EMT in Bloomington, Indiana. New York City became the epicenter for coronavirus in the U.S. Across the city, hospitals were slammed with new cases, and doctors and nurses had to use the same protective gear, or PPE, again and again. Many of those frontline workers became sick. New York also racked up the most deaths, with nearly 30% of the nation's total casualties. Cases there peaked in mid-April and spiked again a week later, but have been steadily decreasing, an effective case of flattening the curve. But hospitals are not back to normal. An ER doctor from New York University's Lagone Hospital in Brooklyn agreed to speak with us, provided we not disclose his identity. Here's how he described the situation during the COVID-19 outbreak there. So the current state of the hospital right now is not as bad as it was uh, in early April. That was when the peak was. Um, but still now, or beyond capacity, there's not enough beds. There's not enough protective equipment, not enough ventilator equipment, not enough space even. Um, and we're just doing our best to work around um, the fact that there's beds in the hallway, there's there's no space to even just debrief. All in all, it's it's definitely been uh, very hectic, and we're basically going by trial and error for a lot of the times. As of this podcast, New York State's reopening plan is underway, depending on measurable progress in each region. The New York City metro area, the most densely populated and hardest hit, will be the last to reopen. In stark contrast, Georgia reopened some non-essential businesses on April 24th, a day before the date the CDC projected to be the peak for Georgia's cases. Many public health experts think Georgia's move to restart its economy is too early and fears the state risks another surge in cases as increased mobility and the inevitable relaxing of social distancing starts to happen. Dr. George Leach, an emergency room doctor from Emory Hospital in Atlanta, was critical of the government's response to the pandemic. I feel like my hospital's got my back. I feel like my colleagues and my medical directors have my back. 
but uh, this stuff has just been so minimized for so long when it was an obvious problem. I kind of felt like, okay, this is coming, but I didn't necessarily think that our country would allow it to infiltrate us like we did without ever having the opportunity to stop it. So I didn't see that coming. You know, I thought we would have been a lot better because we're the United States, right? I mean, I thought we'd be a lot better at uh, finding those first couple people that landed with the disease, quarantining them and preventing it from becoming a, a pandemic through the entire country, right? Um, that part I didn't see coming because of my opinion of our country. Georgia currently ranks 14 in the list of states most impacted by COVID-19, with most of the cases in the five counties that comprise the capital city of Atlanta. In America's heartland, Indiana's statistics parallel that of Georgia's. The state of Indiana ranks just behind Georgia at number 15, with most of its cases in the capital city of Indianapolis. An hour south of Indianapolis is Bloomington. Margie Klaus has been serving there as both a nurse and paramedic for the past nine years. COVID-19 has had a profound impact on her work as an EMT first responder. Oh my gosh. I will say we're not having as many 911 calls that are coming in. Um, we have a lot of patients who are trying to wait until the very last second to call because they don't want to go. They don't want to be exposed. They don't want to endanger themselves, which I completely understand. And so the, the, the call volume has gone down, um, but also the level of acuity has gone up. So because people are waiting till the very last minute, we are seeing a lot more sicker patients than, than what we were. There's also the fact that, you know, before we in EMS, EMTs and paramedics alike, we chose this job for a reason or it chose us. You're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about other people. And that is your passion is to take care of these people. And with the COVID, it's made us have to stop. Like we, we aren't allowed to do things that we used to once do. You have to stop and you have to put your mask on. You have to put your gown on. You have to put your, your goggles on before you can even help that patient. And that has been a big adjustment, I think, for a lot of us as we feel like we are wasting precious time because we have to protect ourselves. At the same hospital, Katie Howe is a registered nurse and director of emergency services. She describes preparations there. So kind of interesting, you know, we've been prepping for this for quite some time, just watching and anticipating, knowing and being kept up to date by our epidemiologists and infection prevention teams. So we knew the possibility of it coming our way was very real. Here in the Midwest, we, we watch the coasts right? So each side of our country, we watch because it hits them first. This is usually the way that it happens. It hits them first, and then it comes to the center. And where I'm located currently, it has changed very rapidly, and, and we do have an increased number of cases, and we're considered a hotspot. So it's, it's rapidly changed. Despite their preparation, Katie said that dealing with the virus is fraught with uncertainty. In the ER setting over the years, you know, we've experienced H1N1. We've experienced SARS. We've done disaster management and, you know, managed multiple trauma patients at the same time or an influx of patients because of flu. But we have never experienced anything like the COVID-19 that we're experiencing now. Just a lot of unknowns with the COVID-19 pandemic, everything changes every day and everything changes, you know, within the day. And 
we're learning more and more and we just don't have all the answers. So that uncertainty, I think, has raised a lot of emotions amongst especially the ER nurses that I work alongside with. Emotions, as nurse Katie Howe mentions, are running high among frontline workers. Every day, news headlines make the case for more masks and gowns, worry over the lack of respirators, and point out the need for testing. Those concerns are more immediate. But long term, what will be the lasting legacy of COVID-19? For those on the front line, the toll may be psychological. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is commonly linked with war veterans, but healthcare workers on the front lines of this pandemic are expected to experience a surge in trauma-related illnesses. All the medical workers we spoke with discussed the stress on the job. A lot of our staff is experiencing burnout. We're really stressed. We are chronically tired. We really, we just don't stop until we feel like we can't stop. And that's that's one of the things that's hard during this pandemic is right now everybody feels like, you know, we have to keep giving of ourselves. And in turn, what happens is, you know, we don't take care of ourselves, right? Where you go, go, go. I can tell you right now, I haven't slept more than three hours at a time in the past six weeks. I, um, I look like I've aged like a president in an eight-year term of presidency. So, you know, it's just, it takes, it takes its toll on you. You know, you really start to think about the actual risk of your job exposing you to something that, I mean, quite frankly, could kill you. And that's that's not a overwhelming strain, but it is this slow burn all the time. So I'll go through a day and I feel okay, but then maybe I try to go to sleep and my brain's just churning. I'm just staring at the ceiling for an hour before I fall asleep. You know, this invisible threat, existential threat that's in the air and stuff could could get me, you know? Some people are really struggling. We do have some staff that they are really having a hard time with it. They're uh, depressed and, you know, concerned, rightfully so. And then we have some that kind of blow it off and they just try to be strong and they kind of hide it all. And then, so, you know, it's just really hard to tell, like, because everybody is, they only show you what they want you to see. And there have been a couple that have reached out to me and said, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble sleeping. I'm having trouble staying asleep. I'm having some nightmares. I'm, you know, so we have had things like that. Dr. Jerome Libba, functional neurologist and founder of Thrive NeuroHealth in Atlanta, describes PTSD this way. Post-traumatic stress, one, is not exclusively related to somebody who's been in combat situations. And it's not exclusively related to somebody who's had a physical impact as if they've had some assault, right? What it means is that if you've had stress exceed your threshold and it's moved from discomfort to trauma and you live through that again in hindsight or secondary to your experience, are we going through things that are outside of our depth, outside of our comfort zone and exceeding a threshold? And is it moving into a trauma? Dr. Libba's discipline in functional neurology has been involved in promising studies around the treatment of PTSD. Long considered a psychological disorder, PTSD has a physical side as well. So the way I tell everybody functional neurology is it's kind of like being a personal trainer for the brain. Um, most people know that they have a brain, but they don't know exactly how it's built or how to use it. So I help give them specific exercises and resources that help to make their brains more fit and more healthy. These exercises can help rehabilitate your brain from PTSD by calming overactive areas of the brain and activate areas that are under firing. 
The goal is to calm and regulate your fear-focused brain. As for folks who are in the front lines, this is quintessentially going to be a conversation around fatigue. This is not something where I can ask somebody who's in a triage situation to go and take a break. It, it, a lot of these folks don't have that space. Um, so although it may sound too simple, there is nothing more important than just being able to take an intentional breath right? Because we're dealing with a, a pulmonary disorder. We're dealing with a virus that affects somebody's capacity to breathe effectively. So when there's this change in the environment specifically related to breathing, being more aware of it and being more intentional about it and being more in control of it actually turns on the part of your brain that deals with cognition and lucidity and decision-making and deductive reasoning and logic and helps to calm down your fight or flight response. So when everybody's in these really high stress situations and they're being put into pressured situations, literally and physically, and physiologically, it's really important to go, can I just maybe slow my breathing? The healthcare workers we spoke with all say that some efforts are being made to address the stress level on the job. For Nurse Katie in Indiana, she says their approach is fairly holistic, meeting their physical and emotional needs. I would say overall, we're coping, we're managing, we've set up areas where they can go and relax and uh, chill out um, with uh, chair massagers. <laughs> and, you know, I do daily phone calls to, to them. I, I probably call 10 people a day just to check in. How are you doing? What do you need? Um, we do have a hotline they can call if they're experiencing any kind of psychological or emotional turmoil. I've asked that our chaplains and social workers make frequent rounds in the emergency department on our staff and our team. You know, I've had days where everybody's laughing and I've had days where it's just, they've just kind of maxed out for that time period and they're in the office crying. So it's, it's, it's kind of just a surreal time and just making sure that you support them in a way that that person can receive. For the ER doctor in New York, relief comes from the volunteers who have flocked to this city from across the nation as well as confidential meetings where medical staff can vent about the day's events without fear of repercussion. Basically, people from all walks of life are helping out. And it's helping us tremendously. I can't understate that. Our staff alone would not be able to handle this as well as we did without them. The meetings that I'm primarily speaking of are the m and meetings, the morbidity and mortality meetings. And that's when we just talk about what went wrong and what we can do better. And there's the side goal of also... Um, just venting and getting out our frustrations. There is a facilitator. Uh, a lot of times we're focused on uh, one or two cases that really went wrong, and then we sort of branch out from there. But yes, those, those meetings happen throughout the day, and that is one way that a lot of us do cope with emotions that build up. As this pandemic unfolds, therapeutic apps are trending. Digital therapies such as Headspace and Calm have begun to meet the needs of healthcare workers dealing with anxiety, stress, and sleep disorders. Again, Dr. George. You know, one of the cool things that we've had as a resource, the people at Headspace had given free memberships to anybody with a national provider number. So there's things like that that people are doing to try to de-stress. Until COVID-19, telehealth, the use of technology, or more simply video calls to a doctor have been available for years but never really caught on. Now, in the midst of this pandemic, there has been a wave of virtual visits, allowing patients to speak directly with their doctor without the fear or risk of an actual office visit. 
WellNight is the first comprehensive mental health care platform that provides same-day doctor consultation via video chat. And it's this convenient and immediate access to mental health providers that may be the key for time-pressed doctors, nurses, and EMTs. WellNight co-founders Elisa Swan and Paolo Gonzalez explain the startup's mission and how they're responding to the COVID-19 crisis. For anyone that comes to WellNight, the services and the access to mental health care is pretty easy. They can schedule an appointment with a physician within the same day. If the doctor assesses that the person needs medication, we can deliver it within three days to their home. And if they need extra support, all of our plans provide chat-based mental health coaching. And if they feel that they actually need to talk to someone and see someone, we also provide video calls with licensed therapists. A lot of people are stressed out, they're very anxious, and then like all their previous coping method doesn't work. For example, like they couldn't go and talk to their therapist in person. So a lot of people are coming to our platform, you know, just to get anxiety and depression medication and to talk to a therapist via video call. Since the pandemic began in the U.S., traffic through WellNight's site has increased by 65%. A lot of the increased demand has come from frontline workers seeking assistance. So those are the people that we're most concerned of because those are the people that are living, you know, the experience and the anxiety in, uh, as a frontliner in first person. One of the things that, you know, Elise and I discuss and agreed on is like, how can we help those people? One of the things that we're trying to, to put together is actually platforms or physician networks that are working with a lot of frontliners, healthcare workers, and make sure that we can provide the services for them and make it accessible to them. So trying to, to figure out what are the initiatives that we can do to help those people because they are, they are taking most of the responsibility and most of the punch right now. The punch that Paolo describes not only impacts the hero on the front line, it impacts their families as well. Lives are upended and routines have become a tiresome ritual of isolation and sterilization to guard against an unseen enemy. And then my two youngest daughters, they both have chronic medical conditions. So I made the decision three and a half weeks ago when things started to kind of amp up, you know what, you're going to go live with your grandma and grandpa right now. We live in a small house. I don't really have anywhere to go. So it's a challenge to try to decontaminate myself leaving work. That's an extra 20 to 30 minutes of work that I didn't have before. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> it's really hard to, um, for me in particular, my mother has respiratory issues. And so I haven't been able to see her. And that's been, that's been pretty tough. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, I talk to my mom every single day. We have wipes and we just wiped out all our common counters just very frequently. Every time we do something, we cook, whatnot, after we finish, we just wipe everything down. And that's the way we've been trying to minimize exposure to any of us. Easter dinner was interesting. My mom cooked a, a great Easter meal and I sat outside the window in the rain on her front porch and we were able to eat as a family, but I was outside and they were inside, but at least we got to see each other. And then 
my son runs up when I get home now. He's at a, he's four. He's at grade age. He comes up and says, "Hey, you know, he, he wants a hug," and he's like, "Daddy," and yells that. But I have to basically tell him, "Don't touch me." Each of us would have a basket where we, as soon as we stepped in, we would get rid of all our scrubs, and then we would just go straight to the shower and just wash off that way. When we come home every night, we take our clothes off, all in uh, the garage put my, you know, robe on, I come straight to the shower, completely shower, wash my hair, and then once I am completely clean, then I'm allowed to hug my family. I walk in and I throw all the scrubs, the ones I'm wearing, the ones I wore at work, I throw everything in the washing machine. I'm uh, in my birthday suit, I walk straight back to the shower that we've basically reserved just for me, and I shower. And uh, then I'm finally done. <laughs> so it's it's pretty it's pretty intense. I we're, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's work, man. So it's definitely been a challenge of it, balancing emotion, but yet in the back of your mind, as a parent, you know you're doing the right thing to protect them, and as a parent, that's what you have to do. Leanna Adams is a freelance writer and the wife of Dr. George Leach. She gave us her perspective on life with a spouse facing the uncertainty of COVID-19. You know, I've been the wife of an ER doctor for a good while now, but it's been particularly stressful, I can honestly say. It's just been so close to home and I've had so much fear and stress and, and sometimes you can't even face it all. It's just a feeling. It's just overwhelming to think about it all. Um, and I don't want to add to his stress, but it's so difficult when you're very alone, right? But I'm trying, I'm trying my best is all I can tell you. <laughs> on all fronts, I think we're entering this acceptance phase of what's happening in a good way and finding our, our path within that, you know. In our marriage, um, it has really taught me that we can face things together and that we will find our way and find our, our, our happiness within it, right? I mean, I, I truly believe all happiness is internal, right? So I'm thankful to be reminded of that, that I have to have it from within and that he and I can do this together. We can get through this, you know? The importance of critical healthcare workers during a public emergency can't be understated. The doctors, nurses, paramedics, and hospital support staff are the essential heroes battling on the front line of this pandemic. After the break, we'll speak with a few others that have emerged as essential. Those who help keep our grocery shelves stocked, who deliver supplies to us when we can't leave home. Stay with us. You chose this path of nursing, and Baltimore General Hospital has developed a podcast just for you. The Journey of Nursing isn't just a repository of healthcare and nursing knowledge. Rather, it's veteran nurses telling it like it is, giving new nurses an honest, unvarnished glimpse into this noble career. Check it out at baltimoregeneral.org slash thejourneyofnursing. Veteran Insights today to help you change the world tomorrow. Since the pandemic began, essential services remained open while many other businesses in the U.S. shut down to keep people apart, protect their workers, and help flatten the curve. Of those deemed essential, some of the most visible have been grocery store employees and delivery drivers. 
thrust onto the front lines during a public health emergency. Some businesses like Kroger and Walmart enacted what amounts to hazard pay bonuses to compensate for the added risk they face working in close proximity to the public. We spoke with an Amazon delivery driver in San Francisco and a grocery store clerk in Atlanta. Isaiah Brown has worked for Amazon for the last two years delivering packages in the usually bustling city of San Francisco. At 25 years of age, he's working at Amazon while taking a couple classes at Skyline Community College in San Bruno, California. His third try at college, he thinks this time it will lead him to a career at a nonprofit organization doing ministry work. Despite the risks of exposure that come with frequent stops and multiple touch points, Isaiah finds his new normal to be a positive one. Yeah, it's changed a bit. So I guess we came straight from the Christmas season where things are very crazy. You're working more hours, delivering more packages. And now uh, going into this pandemic, uh, funny enough, things haven't really gotten harder because there's no traffic at all. I kind of like it, (laughs) if I can be 100% honest, because, um, you know, you feel more safe when there's no, like, cars rushing at you. And, uh, yeah, it speeds things up a lot. Um, I can usually deliver 15 stops an hour, but lately it's been, like, 20 to 25 an hour. So that cuts a lot of time off of our routes. And at the same time, we keep hiring more and more people. So our routes are fairly small at the moment. So my stops have been around 80 lately and I've been finishing early, but we get paid a day rate. So I just get to go home early and still get paid. So it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm loving it too. To tell the truth, people are a lot more grateful now. There's a lot more gratitude. They weren't that grateful, not saying thank you that often. Uh, Sometimes just grabbing the package, then leaving. But as of lately, uh, they've been very grateful and uh, always saying thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. They're hanging signs outside their house just saying thank you, delivery drivers, for what you're doing. Handing out food and drinks and even giving me like a mask and gloves if I don't have any. I really say a shout out to the customers. Uh, My favorite customers who deliver to are moms in particular because they're just so awesome. They're like fearless and they're always considerate. Uh, You like, they will open the door, they have a baby in one hand trying to hold back the dog. And even through all that, you you even see the tiredness in their eyes. And they're like, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, man, you, you have such a large capacity of consideration and just thinking of others. So just little things like that, people you look forward to seeing to every day and just building those relationships. When pressed to explain how he's coping with the stress of being an essential worker, well, Isaiah still found the silver lining in all of it. So I work Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. So I have a little break in between uh, on Wednesdays. That's why we're able to talk right now. And uh, it just gives me time to catch up on homework, uh, hang out with friends. You know, it's a lot of physical work uh, doing deliveries. So... I feel a bit more relaxed with that day in between. And then I go back to work tomorrow and the day after, and then the weekend hits. So I think that's a good way to cope with the stress. I still get to go out, see the sunshine every day, interact with people. And yeah, it's been great. It's been a great blessing for me and to not have to lose my job and to know that it's very stable as well. It's a great comfort to me as well. 
services happening outdoors in the sun on nearly empty streets with little actual contact to those he delivers to but is post traumatic stress a real possibility for let's say the other folks on the front lines like grocery store clerks or the rest of us who aren't necessarily on the front lines but are still stressed out here's dr jerome again absolutely i mean this is the first time in human history that you're seeing 100% of the population go through the same stressor to varying degrees but realistically what does it look like to either quarantine or be in the midst of a crisis like a healthcare worker so the reason i say that is first and foremost we have to be gracious enough and we have to be compassionate enough to realize that your grocery store worker who is afraid to come home and give the coronavirus to their kids but they can't quit their job because they're on a minimum wage job is going to experience their own level of stress related to their threshold in comparison to a nurse who excels under pressure and somebody who's capable of saying, I live in this triage environment all day. So you could also sometimes make the argument that the person who's got the stamina and the capacity to handle the triage may in fact have a lower rate or a lower degree of PTSD than the average person who got it and has no familiarity with that level of stress. In short, the answer is yes. Anyone, including grocery store workers, can experience enough stress to be debilitating. In fact, they may be less equipped than the nurses and doctors who regularly work in triage conditions. We spoke with a grocery store worker to get her perspective on life on the front lines. Kate works at a national grocery chain, and she agreed to speak with us as long as we didn't disclose the name of the chain or the location where she worked. Unlike Isaiah, her surroundings are indoors with less space and greater contact with the public. Social distancing is a challenge, since the store's footprint is smaller than some of the big box stores like Kroger. Customers with varying attitudes about wearing masks while in public add an additional layer of anxiety on the job. So I think, especially right now, there seems to be, because the state that I live in is open for business. And so I'm seeing sort of a tension between people who are wearing masks and maintaining social distancing and people who are not and making sure everyone is safe and everyone is feels seen and taken care of is even more of a challenge than it has been just because the virus is unseen. You know, we don't exactly have the ability to, to lay eyes upon what we're fighting against and also just making sure that we stay calm throughout the day, that we're taking the necessary precautions to keep people safe so that we don't need to live in that sort of space of, of fear while we're at work. But, you know, I've, I've never had a job where I have to wear a face mask before or constantly wear gloves or sanitize everything. I think everyone is handling this pandemic as best as they can, but some people already had a lot of weight and issues and struggles that they were dealing with before this ever hit. And this is just another addition to the weight that they were already carrying. And then some people are choosing to reach for the positive and reach for light and to uh, sort of power through it. And there have been also people who just don't think this is a real thing. They think that this is, you know, something that's been concocted, that it's blown out of proportion. So 
being able to respect every single person who comes through the store is, is definitely necessary because that's what makes the world go round, Right. But also ensuring that I am taking, you know, the, the measures that are necessary to protect myself as well as other people who come into the store and have to co-mingle, you know, that we have enough space between people so that the person who doesn't believe that it is uh, something that is serious and the person who is taking it very seriously can be in a space safely together. Kate heaps praise on her store and its managers for the steps they've taken to sanitize the store, care for the employees, and limit the amount of foot traffic to help maintain proper distances. Despite this, she still understands that self-care requires concerted effort, so she takes time to recharge. I have been finding that maintaining my mental health and maintaining time to breathe and wind down and to not do anything except sit in my garden and watch the birds is an essential part of my day before I go to work or after I get off from work. Things that I would have definitely not made time for before are now becoming integral moments of my day. We have to be thinking in terms of longevity of, you know, running sort of a long distance race and putting good food into my body and and nourishing myself is going to be something that is a necessary change for that to happen. As a final question, we asked Kate if she had any special message for essential workers like herself. Here's what she had to say. I think the thing that I would say is just thank you to the people who are showing up day after day. I mean, the people who are in hospitals, who are on the front, front lines. I, I'm considered an essential worker because I work in a grocery store, but I'm not with people who are suffering from this. And to continue to show up to your job where supplies are limited, where there's a lot of question marks and unknown information surrounding this uh, virus. But those people are superheroes to me. They're incredible. So yeah, thank you to the people who continue to show up, even when things are tough. We couldn't have said it any better. Thank you, Kate. A little housekeeping before we go. If anyone is interested in finding out more about functional neurology and the work of Dr. Jerome Libba, simply log on to his website, which is drjerome.com or on Instagram at doctor.jerome. Also, if you're feeling the stress of COVID-19 and would like someone to talk to, check out Wellnight's offer for a free 30-minute chat session with one of their mental health coaches. All you need to do is go to www.wellnight.com and look for their compassion plan. A final thought here as we wrap up this episode. It's hard to sum up something as massive and impactful as this global pandemic. But the overriding theme today as we speak to people across this nation is hope. Despite the odds, through all adversity, people often have a way of stepping up and presenting their best selves. We'd like to leave you today with some positive thoughts from the heroes we've met on the front lines. From all of us here at Proximity, I'm Sandy DeLonga. Be well and stay safe. I want to give a shout out to 
every frontline worker, including grocery store workers and, you know, everybody out there, but um, especially just because it's my heart, you know, those badass nurses, I'm very proud of them. And I love that I am one of them. You never know what someone else is going through. So I'd really encourage you, if somebody just crosses your mind, even for a second, just reach out to them and uh, see how they're doing, whether it's your grandpa or a friend you haven't seen since high school, just call them up and I'm pretty sure they'll answer and appreciate the call. I'm really just so inspired by the acts of kindness I'm experiencing and witnessing all around and, and just feeling so much more hope in humanity and, and neighbors and community. What a miraculous thing we're all witnessing, right? Every day in so many ways. I'm just trying to hold on to that. That's a big silver lining for me. So my, my big thing is just don't take things for granted. The sunshine being outside, for goodness sakes, your beauticians, because I cannot wait to see mine because it's killing me. <laughs> it's true. My hair needs done. But just don't take anything for granted, especially your families and your parents and your children. And just enjoy every single day. And if there is something bad that happens in your day, try to find something good out of it because there's got to be a silver lining somewhere. I think the biggest message that I would send would be more of a request to be kind, to be considerate. If we can be considerate of each other and make sure that we are giving each other grace, I think that that's going to help everyone throughout this pandemic. If someone's done something good for you, figure out something to do good for someone else and pass it forward. And when you do it, don't get within six feet of them. <laughs> episode was produced by the team at Atherton Hill, which includes Dan Brown, Jen Hall, Randy Garman, Yi Min Minja Chun, and Nancy Kramer. You started a company to provide a great product for your customers. You started a podcast to tell more people about your company. But is your podcast working? Podcasting is a great way to reach customers, but starting a successful podcast is a lot harder than it sounds. At Atherton Hill, we build better podcasts. We understand how to connect with customers in a meaningful way, creating relevant content your customers want and need. Find out how at AthertonHill.com. Thank you.